Tasha Gank Morton is um, among the most fabulous people that I know. I actually met. <laughs> she wasn't up until recently my boss. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I met Tasha last year, two years ago, when uh, we actually met out in the wilds of Lancaster. Um, we were playing Pokemon Go, and she saw that my gamer tag had something about being a rev, and then we did the whole dance of, oh, you're a pastor? I'm a pastor. Wait, what tradition? Oh, Lutheran. What kind of Lutheran? Okay, the good kind. All right, good. Um, well, for her, it was a little more obvious what kind of Lutheran pastor, but... Um, Tasha is a Luther Seminary graduate in 2008. She started here and at Trandy in uh, 2014 and immediately started making everything better five minutes later. Um, she is perhaps the greatest example of nerd pastor that I have ever met and helps me to be a lot more at ease with my own nerdiness. But um, she is here to talk to us and I'm going to get on with the show. So. Thank you, James. Now, truth be told, when we met, we, we had been told that we shouldn't meet because he did his internship the same place that Adam did his internship. And so the supervising pastor told us, hey, you should all meet. And it just didn't happen. And then as we were talking to each other, we slowly pieced together, wait, we were supposed to meet. And we never did until in the wild. So lots of fun, small world. Um, so I'm here to talk to you about a whole bunch of things today. I kind of squashed all sorts of things that I love into one talk. But what I'm going to start by talking about is near-death experiences. And I can't talk about this without actually sharing some of my own. Um, so the first one I'm going to share is happened when I was in college at some point in time. And I was driving near a local mall, and it was evening, and I was tired. And I'm going to show you the intersection. Some of you might recognize it from Minnesota. This is right next to Rosedale. And you'll notice in this intersection, there is a median right there. So you got people coming off the off-ramp here, and then you are supposed to turn and go up and around. Can you guess what I did? I turned here, because I didn't expect there to be a lane. I was a little tired. I wasn't paying attention. I thought I knew the area well. And I drove up this direction. Now, it was night. Thankfully, I had my headlights on. And thankfully, the cars getting off the ramp saw me, honked at me, and mercifully moved aside as I realized, oh, no. <laughs> so I passed about three cars. I got up to the top of the exit ramp. I whipped around and started going the right direction and drove home. The second time. Now, I've only told maybe actually one person this story. I realized as I was telling my husband about uh, this talk was originally an idea for an actual piece on Mockingbird. And then as I was telling my stories, Adam said, well, you should think about doing this at the conference that we're hosting. But I was telling him the story, and I realized he's, he told me, you've never told me this story before. And I realized, I don't think I've told anyone this story before. Um, I did my internship in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at that time I was an avid runner, and I was hoping to run um, the Charlotte Half Marathon. Well, I injured myself pretty badly. There was no way I could run it. So I decided, you know, I, I went there, I was still, you know, I paid for it, and part of, you know, doing races is you get the shirts, like you get the awesome shirts, and I won my shirt. I had paid for that shirt. And I got there and I simply asked, you know, 
I can't run it. Could you use a volunteer? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you an assignment. Um, so I got there, and I was assigned to direct traffic into a parking lot. It's a really easy assignment. So you can see here, um, this is where I was stationed. I took a picture. Um, you see that my marker right there? That is 26. I was right before that marker. So this is a good place to be, you know. The run in this route, this route was horrible, by the way. Like the last mile, it's all uphill. It's like, why? Why do you have the last mile going uphill? And it's not, you know, a steep uphill where you feel like you're doing something. It's that slow, like, killer, soul-killing, like, slow uphill. So I was stationed right there, and it was my job to direct parking, to direct people into a parking lot. Like, you can come to me and no further. You can park in this parking lot. Otherwise, there are runners here. You can't go anywhere else. Easy job. Should have been an easy job. Oh, I'm making things. Okay. Um, so I was there. It was great. It was a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of fun being at this mile marker because, you know, people can kind of, they get the taste of it. You couldn't actually, the other horrible thing, you couldn't see the finish line from here. Like, you hit mile 26, you should be able to see the finish line. You got like 0.2 miles left, you couldn't. I mean, it was a horrible course. But, so, you know, I'm there, I'm cheering runners on, it's great, and we hit about the four-hour mark, which is when a lot of people are finishing. Four hours is a great kind of mark, you know, if you want to run the Boston Marathon, if you finish around four hours, you're in. So there are a ton of runners coming through. And at this time, a big tan SUV comes up. Now, there had been a police officer stationed down about a block down from me who was telling people, you know, helping people across, like there was a stoplight there, so getting people across and not hitting people. But, you know, I, you know, I'm here going to the parking lot. And he, he was telling people, you know, you can go up there, but you can only go into the parking lot. No further. So this lady in this tan SUV pulls up, and it's clear she has no intention of going in this parking lot. None. So she pokes her head out the window, starts yelling at me because she has to get to a church event on time, and she's already late. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. You can only park in here. We've got runners finishing the course. You can go no further. So go in the parking lot, or you've got to turn around. I'm sorry. This is a perfectly reasonable request. There are tons of runners coming by. I'm standing there looking somewhat official in my race. Uh, race gear, a volunteer thing, you know, reasonable request. She freaks out at me. She starts yelling at me. She's late. She needs to get to church now. It's a big deal. And I just stand there. I'm like, nope, I'm sorry. You can't go any further. This is not good enough for her. She guns her engine, peels her tires, and starts coming straight for me. And Okay, so over the years, I've had friends debate which Hogwarts house I belong in. You know, is she a Ravenclaw? Is she a Gryffindor? And I give you example A of why I'm a Gryffindor, because no, no self-respecting Ravenclaw would have just stood there as this big SUV comes barreling towards you, like just, I'm here like this. Now, she stops about a foot away from me, probably realizing, like, hey, I shouldn't run over this random stranger in order to get to church. And also, you know, there's a police officer down there watching this whole thing. She realizes, you know, maybe getting to church is probably not worth running somebody over. Turns around, goes back, and the police officer definitely has words with her. And then he comes back and tells me, you know, by the way, just next time, just move. It's okay. Just move. <laughs> it's like, yeah. 
And I also like that while I was doing my pastoral internship, I almost got ran over by a lady trying to get to church. I mean, that's, isn't that ministry in general? Now, I tell these two stories because in the face of skirting death, like especially when I went up that exit ramp the wrong way, um, I, I think of this text from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in our Lutheran book of worship kind of uh, occasional services, when we go and we do gravesite services, this is one of the passages that they give you as an option to read. Um, and I love this passage. Listen, I t- will tell you a mystery. We will not all die but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, yes! What a great text to read. At my home congregation, in my first call, we would use kind of those, you know, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Uh, as a part of our Easter liturgy on Easter Sunday. So, you know, you'd be calling that out with the congregation. And um, I would say it with as much conviction and defiance as I can muster. And if I'm being honest, like, I like to think of it like I'm kind of giving fing- the finger to death as I'm reading this out loud with as much conviction as possible. Um, the pop culture equivalent to, in this, to my mind, is um, from Game of Thrones, uh, Arya Stark, my favorite character. Um, so she is learning how to sword fight, and her teacher is named Cyril Pharrell. And one of the most famous and iconic exchanges between them and her line is, um, what do we say to the god of death? And the answer is, not today. Like, yeah. And yes, I bought the shirt exactly for this talk. Um, I wanted it anyway. It was just a good excuse. But not today. Um, and this is later comes in um, into play in later seasons. It's a very wonderful, important line. And normally, you know, I'm 100% with Aria, right? Not today. Not today. And we try and carry that conviction into life after near-death experiences. Not today. Um, so as we talk about Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones is over, so now my favorite TV show that's left running is The Good Place. How many Good Place fans do we have out there? We have a few. Okay. Yes. If you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix. Go and watch the first two seasons, and then, I kid you not, it's, it's, it's worth, like, putting up with the commercials, because I'm so spoiled with the DVR and that kind of stuff now. I just fast-forward through commercials. Like, it's totally worth putting up with the commercials to watch season three. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal show. Um, And the premise is everyone ends up in the good place or the bad place based on a point system, how you lived on Earth. And so they have this great scene where they show all the points. Dave Zoll, Mockingbird, has shown this before in his talks uh, because we love the good place. Uh, so, for example, ending slavery gets you 814,292.9 points, while disturbing a coral reef with a flipper will get you negative 53.83 points. 
Uh, for my friend Matt out there, uh, remaining loyal to the Cleveland Browns will get you plus 53.83 points, while cheering for the New York Yankees nets you a negative 99.15 points. Um, saving a person from a house fire will get you uh, 1,909 points, while being commissioner of a professional football league, American, will get you negative 824. So, and the list goes on. If you, if you want to have fun, you can find this online, and it'll give you all the things that they've assigned points to throughout the years. Um, the main character is Eleanor Shellstrop, and she's played by Kristen Bell. Um, and she is a self-described Arizona dirtbag and selfish ass. I love Eleanor because Eleanor is like your id. They, they do such a great job with her character because she's terrible, but she's a relatable terrible Right? So some of the things that she complains about are things that we thought about complaining out loud. Like you get invited to the office baby shower, someone you don't really know or you don't really like. And usually, you know, we're taught you go along with it and she is not having it. Um, so she's very, very relatable. And she ends up in the good place by accident. And you fast forward to a few seasons and Eleanor gets a second chance. So we're going to watch a quick clip and we're going to pray that this all works. Results will be tainted, and I reserve the right to change my mind at any point. About what? Would someone who's not an eternal being please explain to me what the f Why are you like this? Excuse me? Why am I like this? You don't know me, dude. You don't know what I'm like. Look what you made me do, jag off. Eleanor, take longer next time. Oh, you look like crap. I was outside the supermarket arguing with that little environmental twerp. Ugh, I hate that guy. Really? That skinny little hippie body kind of turns me on. Rose! Guys, listen, I dropped the margarita mix, and when I went to pick it up, a bunch of shopping carts came right at me, and I was just frozen. And then someone pushed me out of the way, and the carts got, like, demolished by a truck. I mean, I could have died. Oh my God. Whoa, that's crazy. So is the margarita mix like gone? I had a near-death experience recently. You know that old warehouse that burned down last month and like four people died? That building is like right by my old dentist. If I still went to that dentist and I had an appointment that day, I would have been like right near there. I was in Syracuse, New York, like two weeks before 9-11. No way! Yeah, 14 days. I can't believe we all almost died. My name is Eleanor Shellstrop, and I think I might be a monster. I'm rude, I'm selfish, I cyber-bullied Ryan Lochte until he quit Instagram. But something happened to me today, and from now on, I'm gonna try to become a better, kinder, more generous person. Hey, can I use your credit card? You know what? Yes, you can. Cool. It's for porn. I already used it. It's a great show. I really commend it to you all to check out. It's on Netflix. Um, so, you see, 
Eleanor has her near-death experience, and she gets to say, not today. She gets to go out there and try to live a better life. I love, I love her friends in contrast to her. Um, kind of shows you the kind of person she was beforehand. Um, and as we talk about this, as pastors, you know, the same thing happens to us uh, after we experience near-death experiences. For me, I remember after I drove up that exit ramp the wrong way, you can guess that I was a really good driver all the way home. I still go on that intersection, by the way, on a semi-regular basis when I'm back in Minnesota. I always think about it when I'm there, and I'm always a really good driver around that time. Um, And of course, we as pastors uh, experience death up close and personal on a really regular basis, more so than the average person. And it can't help but impact us in the way that we see our lives. I remember... Um, for me, because, you know, I'm a pipeliner, I went straight from college to seminary to first call, um, the first, you know, and I had had friends that had died um, before my age, um, but I remember the first funeral I did at internship, I didn't even really do anything for it, I think I mispronounced a word in a prayer, maybe, and that was all I did, um, but I sat there, and, you know, you sit there, and you go, okay, this is what I want my funeral to look like, and I have a journal entry from, like, 2000 and whatever year that was, 2006, 2007, where I wrote out all my preferred hymns and scripture passages um, for my funeral. Anyone else? Has anybody else done that? (laughs) By the way, I'm still really happy with my scripture and my um, music choices. So I don't know if Adam will find them, if I should like happen to go before him, but eh, close enough. Sounds good. Then he has to find the right journal, and then he has to read all the stuff that I wrote and some of it's just really embarrassing. This is, you know, self-reflection. <laughs> and then, but however, you know, we start, that was my internship, and then we start selling into this call and this ministry. And death just keeps on coming. And it comes faster and harder. And sure, we do plenty of funerals for people who are older, who have lived good and full lives, um, who have had, hit these, you know, major birthday milestones. Um, you know, we had a congregation member that was going to hit 99 before he died, and he did it, and then died like two days afterwards. But we also start doing funerals for people who remind us of our parents and our spouses. We do funerals for stillbirths and miscarriages and babies and children. We live through funerals of our own family members, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, our parents. And we start doing funerals for people our own age at the same time. And we'd be lying to say if we said this didn't impact us. Because no matter how often we say not today to death, death says, nope, today today. This past uh, fall and winter, um, I lived through what I'll call a new new form of a near-death experience. Um, And it started right before the 10th anniversary of my ordination. Like, I can't believe that happened already. And um, a colleague of mine back in the Twin Cities, her name was Stephanie. I won't pretend that I knew her really well. Um, but I, I, and I knew her husband actually pretty well because we served at congregations near each other. And um, so 
But I had met her, we had talked, I admired her from afar. She had started out as an associate pastor, had moved her way into co, um, co-leading, co-senior pastoring a large, really wonderful congregation in the area and uh, had made that transition really well, something I admire because it's something I hope to do someday as well. And she was a mom and just a really wonderful pastor and person, somebody you can't help but admire for her passion. Um, But around September, she had a heart episode, ended up in the ICU. Um, And I was following her story. We were praying along with her and her husband, Paul, the entire family. She went through this, had operations. And on the 10th anniversary of my ordination, she died. And it was heartbreaking for the community of pastors, especially who knew her and Paul in the Twin Cities. Um, Following up that, about a month or so later, another colleague of mine, another pastor, mom, wife from the Twin Cities who I liked and admired, um, died of cancer. And it had been a long road. She had had cancer for a long time, so it wasn't exactly unexpected, but it's still terrible. Another faithful pastor, wife, mom had died. And then in the midst of all of this, another pastor friend of mine, Amy, found out that she had metastatic melanoma that had spread to her brain. And I was really, really good friends with um, her husband in seminary. Um, We got married the same summer. They got married in Indiana, and we got married back in um, Minnesota. And we had driven back and forth to each other's weddings. We had celebrated together. It was a big deal. And um, she was just a wonderful, wonderful person. I had only met her a couple of times, but you met her, and you wanted to be friends with her. And... Um, just was a wonderful person. And it seemed like she was doing well. She was doing IL-2 treatments with immunotherapy, and it seemed like she was beating it. Um, And it was something to celebrate in the midst of all the bad news of all the other pastor, mom, wives that I knew that were dying. But then uh, this winter, it got worse, and she died as well. And I couldn't make it to Indiana for the funeral because there were snowstorms coming through at the exact times I would be driving, and there was just no way to do it safely. And in the midst of what I'm honestly going to call a shitstorm, because it was that, I was reminded that there are two reactions to near-death experiences. Um, The first one, illustrated by The Good Place and Eleanor's reaction to that near-death experience, is, you know, don't take anything for granted, right? You know, life is a gift, and live your life to the fullest because you never know when it's going to end. You know, any of you who have done funerals for someone near your age, you you know that feeling, you know, hold your loved ones closer. Everyone tells you that. Hold your loved ones closer. Appreciate them more. Appreciate life more. Or use it as a reminder to take better care of yourself. Um, It's the same jolt that you feel when you're almost in a car crash, right? You drive better. You're a better driver. You pay better attention. But what eventually happens? It wears off. And I remember this. Right after Amy had died, a friend of mine was doing a survey for his sociology class. So just so you know, if you ever, like, do a survey and you need people to respond and write answers, like, I'm a sucker for that. 
Like, I, I just feel like the compulsive need to help anyone for this, I don't know what it is. So a friend of mine was doing a survey for his sociology class, and he was asking questions about marriage. So, you know, what kind of marriage, you know, do you prefer egalitarian or traditional? And then is that what your partner agrees to? And then how do you actually, do you actually live that out in your marriage, right? And then the final question is, you know, how satisfied are with your marriage and how your labor is divided? And give me, you know, one to 10. And so I am, you know, mourning the death of this friend and mourning with grieving for my friend, um, you know, her husband, a good friend of mine. And, you know, so I get this question. And just so you know, I'm from Minnesota. So when they give you a one to 10, the answer is never 10. You never give anyone or anything a 10. It's just, you don't do that. Nine is really pushing it. So I got asked, you know, how satisfied are you with your marriage and your division of labor? And I'm like, eight, which is really good. This is like the highest you can get. And so congratulations, honey, we reached eight. <laughs> But I can't help but wonder how much of that was influenced by all the things going around me and the fact that I was mourning for this friend of mine who had just had his wife, this wonderful person, die. You know, are we normally more of a six or a seven? I don't know. <laughs> don't take anything for granted. Hold your loved ones tighter. Near-death experiences try to tell us these moments of holding on tighter and not taking things for granted are gospel. They're really just the law in a very clever disguise. Because hiding in the demands of not taking anything for granted and holding your loved ones tighter is that little voice whispering to us, earn it. Earn it. Earn this life that you are given in the place of your friends. Earn the life that you have. Earn the extra time you have with them. Earn it. And since we deal with death all the time, as pastors, every funeral we do, whether it's for someone older or younger or who looks like us or who doesn't, every funeral we do tells us to earn it, in a sense. Earn it. Earn this life. And what happens when the glow wears off, when we forget that we almost die because a person cut across two lanes of traffic? This never happens to me. Nearly sideswipes me at the exact same location two days in a row in Lancaster. And we just start driving like a normal person again. Or when we move our marriage down back to satisfaction, back down to six or seven or whatever we happen to be feeling today. Or when we don't hold our children extra tight because heaven help me, he is climbing on me and putting his feet on my head and he will not get off of me ever. <laughs> because we can't keep this heightened state of living forever. Okay, so you remember Eleanor's post, right? Okay, let's go back and see what happened. It's open, dummy! Eleanor, where have you been? Oh, hey, man. Sorry, it's been a crazy month. You know, moving was a hassle, and I'm in the middle of a lawsuit, and I ate vegetables for the first time, and I got diarrhea for, like, a week. Uh I know we don't pay a lot, but this is a job, and we need to know we can count on you. We're meeting tonight to discuss long-term strategy for the organization. Dude, I really dude, think dude, it would dude, be- dude, 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 dude. Oh, sorry to interrupt whatever boring crap this is, but dude, you need to get dressed. I got tickets to Taylor Swift, the Taylor Swift reggae cover band. 
They're terrible. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like more fun. I'm gonna do that. Eleanor! What? Uh, what, dude? I've been nothing but good for like six months, and all I have to show for it is this crummy apartment, a lawsuit, a loose caboose, and an overdrawn bank account. Being good is for suckers. What do you even get out of it? A feeling of fulfillment in your soul. Gross. That's the grossest sentence I've ever heard, okay? I quit. Eat my farts, Benedict Cumberbatch. If you don't get it, it's okay, watch the show. So, you see what happens to Eleanor. She's trying to be good, she's trying to live a better life, she's gone through this near-death experience, she's trying to, you know, earn it, make it worth it, and eventually, life just happens again. And life can be really crummy. And even with that, you know, knowing that you could have died, that's not enough to um, fulfill us, to push us, and it doesn't mean that bad things don't keep on happening. And so I said there were two different reactions to near-death experiences, and here's the second one. So, back to the story at the beginning. After nearly being run over by the crazy church lady in the SUV, like, I should have felt great about myself, right? You know, I had done something, at least in my own estimation, right and good. I had stood my ground, I had kept her from going on and possibly running over people just trying to finish their marathon. However, I just broke down. Like, I just started crying. I had to go back to my car. I got out my sunglasses. I put them on because I could not stop crying. And I felt a major version of this this past winter after all these people that I knew had died. This was the first time in decades I had experienced something like this. In college, I had a stretch not dissimilar to this where I had three friends all college age. Um, die around the same thing, car accidents and a freak brain aneurysm. And I, it was difficult, but I remember bouncing back a lot quicker. You know, it was still really hard, but I was able to rebound. And I was younger, and when you're young, you feel invincible in a way that you don't realize until you're older and you realize it's just gone. It's, it's flown the coop. It's gone. And this time, it was just a pure existential funk. Um, probably compounded, if I'm being honest, by lingering grief that's always going to be there for when my sister had died a year and a half ago. And this time I realized just how much I had to lose. These were pastors like me, and wives like me, and mothers like me. And these are things you have no control over, too. Heart disease, cancer, and we know these things show no discrimination. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. And as opposed to the other type of near-death experience where it demands earn it, this just simply reminded me that death is coming today. There's no saying not today. There's no running and hiding. There's no earning it. There's no holding up how much we have done or loved each other or held tightly to um, those things that we love, our kids, our spouses, our jobs, our call. There's just death. And what do we say to the God of death? Well, this past winter, I had, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing left to say. I knew I couldn't earn this life that I had left, that I was living, that my friends were not. Um, There's no way I could list my accomplishments and hold that up and say, maybe this makes it all worth it. 
I had nothing left to say, no defiant, not today. And we were in the middle of a sermon series that we were doing on 1 Corinthians. I knew that this passage was coming up. We actually didn't get all the way to it, but I knew it was coming up in the way that we had been reading through Corinthians and going through it and interpreting it and preaching it to each other. And I just went, how do I do this? And from where we're sitting as people who do funerals and who deal with death on a day-to-day basis, it looks an awful lot like death is one. Even if we live to fight, sure, another day, we know that death is coming and stalking us. And from where we're sitting, we know how much death stings. And this is one of the most challenging things we're called to do as pastors. We're called to preach at funerals and called to bring the word of resurrection, of new life. I believe in the resurrection and the life. And... You know, and there's also that pressure on us as pastors, you know, as we're preaching at funerals to, you know, talk about how this person has lived a great life, how they have earned, you know, earned it in whatever way, um, shape, or form. And, you know, we're so used to, you know, pulling it out and bringing it forward for these funerals when we're facing the existential crisis of death itself. When we face these personal challenges, we like to think, you know, we can look within ourselves for this word of resurrection in life. You know, we can pull it out of ourselves. Um, You know, because sometimes we do, in our sermons, we preach to ourselves. We preach the law that we're feeling. And, you know, some of our best sermons are the ones that I preach to myself, preach about myself, about being, you know, a woman and all the crazy things that are demanded of us, or a mother, or a wife, or that kind of thing. But sometimes... We can't do it to ourselves. It's like trying to perform CPR on yourself. It doesn't work. You can't do it. And I was reminded that the only thing that we bring to the resurrection is our death. So we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to wait for the word of resurrection to come from other places. And sometimes um, I like to think of it like CPR. So going back to that CPR metaphor, you know, as we're looking for this, as we're, we're, we're needing that life, a friend of mine who was a police officer in a really cushy, like, suburb back in the Twin Cities, you know, they don't get, like, in Lancaster City, you know, you get calls for shootings and all sorts of crazy robberies and stuff. Um, you know, third-ring suburb. So mostly he's doing a lot of paramedic stuff, and he's going to do CPR and bring the AED. And he always talked about, um, into our confirmation youth, about how it's not like the movies. You know, you do CPR and somebody goes up, ah, and you know, up and moving again is fine. He's like, no, it's, it's really slow and quiet. And you barely know that the person was alive again, except you can feel a pulse. And there's a bit of shallow breathing. And often, that's what it's like for us. There's no big, you know, as I share this story, there's no big aha moment where it was all fixed, where I felt better, where I realized, oh, it's all going to be fine. There was no major jolt. It's just being slowly brought back to life. And it's being brought back to life by, of course, Jesus. I, as I was preparing this talk, I stumbled across a quote from uh, Robert Fair Capon, Um, just stumbled across this on the internet. Um, And it says, at the very worst, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection, the life, that makes you just his cup of tea. Whether we feel like dead people walking because of our sin or 
our own frailty. I know you out there have your own stories of all the own personal ways you faced death and had these near-death experiences. Most uh, your experiences probably aren't as silly and funny as mine because we know that death surrounds us. And sometimes, you know, we're actually dying. And yet we have a Jesus who raises us from the dead, who says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he means it. He means it. And second, we have each other. Cal did this perfectly already. I feel like it's the perfect introduction to the talk. We need preachers too. I'm lucky. I work on a staff, right? I'm lucky in that sense. And the staff happens to be full of very good preachers. Um, and so I get to hear other people preach and bring me back to life week after week. We listen to our lectors. You know, sometimes we take that for granted. But listening to our lectors and the way that they say it and the way that they bring us back to life. This past um, winter, right as this was all happening, I worked with our confirmation youth and we wrote psalms together. I had them write their own psalms. And it was beautiful. Our confirmation youth have their own struggles. I know, you know, we have a small, you talk about, oh, you know, it's a small confirmation group and that's such a shame, but I know these kids well. And I know their struggles. I know what they're going through. And this is one, um, we, were, we were reading our psalms to each other. And this is, you know, right after this had all happened, I think this is the weekend that I realized I couldn't be there for the funeral. So we we're reading our psalms to each other. And one of them wrote this. And I know she has some struggles. So she has her struggles. Her family has the struggles. And this is what she wrote. My life was wilting. I had no strength. I gave up believing. You for my dark night. In the worst hour, he saves us. He saved me. And with no cost, he protects me. He speaks through the ones I love. He was always there ready to save and care and listen. Believe with confidence. A 12-year-old wrote this. <laughs> and I just sat there. I just started crying. I'm like, you guys are wonderful. <laughs> The, she was my preacher, and it was the last place I was expecting. So if you are feeling this crush of death too, you're not alone. If you're feeling like life is telling you to earn it, you're not alone. So I'm going to do my best here to read this word one more time with confidence, because I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it a few months ago. But others did it for me. In fact, some of you did it for me. I remember in the Mockingbird Conference in D.C. a few years ago. That was right after my sister had died. And you guys did this for me there. You've done it for me in our interactions. So let me do it for you. Because this is the word of the resurrections. We can't bring ourselves to life. We can bring each other back to life through reading the word, through caring each other, for reminding each other that Jesus is the resurrection, the life. So we will finish as we began. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death 
has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.